Welcome to another episode of Breaking Bread. I'm here with Ray Abruzzo, best known as Little Carmine from the iconic television series, The Sopranos. Welcome to Breaking Bread, Ray. Nice to be here, Anthony. Nice to see you again. It is nice to see you again, too. I'm so happy to have you on, and I'm thrilled, especially with all the buzz going around the many saints of Newark. And that was my burning question out of the gate. I like yeah. have to say, what did you think? Uh, you're assuming I saw it. Yeah, I am assuming that you saw it. Well, I did see it. <laughs> I did. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to say what I thought. You know, the thing about David Chase is he never gave everybody exactly what they wanted. You know, everybody loves The Sopranos and now everybody's stepping back 14 years later, new people finding it. Oh, it's the great, you know, perfect, perfect, perfect. But I go back in time and I remember certain seasons would end and the people would be, that was the worst season finale ever. I hated what he did there. What was with that dream? Oh, I hated that storyline there. What the, you know, and people got angry about everything. It shouldn't have ended the way it did. You know, so everybody always uh, never gets really what they want. And I think that's kind of part of the genius of David Chase. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to know the truth, uh, he writes what he wants to write and you like it or you don't. And, you know, for, uh, six and a half seasons of the 86 episodes. Ultimately, there were some people didn't like, but in general, it was liked and it still is. <laughs> and I'm just mostly, Anthony, what I got to say is I'm so blown away by the, by the legs that The Sopranos has. I mean, the, especially in the last year, the pandemic really had a resurgence with The Sopranos. People were binging it all over, all over the world, not just in, in, in the States. And, um, and then with all the buzz about Many Saints in Newark, it just... I mean, I think in the last few weeks, people were just binging 86 episodes straight yeah. at the Soprano. So they'd have every, you know, so they could look for every little detail in many saints that they wanted. So I'm just amazed at, at the, the longevity that the, the Sopranos has. And I think, um, you know, there's a line in the episode where we have the premiere of Cleaver, right? At the uh, end, Tony says to Christopher, no matter what else happens in your life, you did this and people are going to be watching this for 50 years or something, something to that effect. And, you know, he was kind of talking about Cleaver, but I doubt, I think it was really talking about the Sopranos uh, in general. And I think that's, I think that really has come to be, to be true. It's like really funny that you mentioned Cleaver because I saw someone post this. I'm not sure who it was, but I saw that there's this theory that The Many Saints of Newark was written by Chris Moltisanti. <laughs> I, saw, I, saw, I, yeah. I think a few people are saying that. I think that I think that they're just trying, maybe taking a shot at the script of the of, yeah, of Many yeah. Saints. I think that's I think that's snark more than anything, yeah. more than anything else. At least they didn't say it was produced because the production was pretty good. So maybe it was yeah. produced by Little Carmine Luper Right. Because the production values were great and it was directed beautifully by Alan Taylor. Uh, you know, people have problems with the storyline. You know, people wanted to see different things. You know, even I did. I, uh, well, I, I mean, is it okay? To, I don't want to have any spoilers on. Uh, uh, I'm pretty sure almost everyone's probably seen it by now. So Okay. I mean, this when you first see he's in the phone booth, he's trying to get in touch with uh, with Dickie on, about to buy mm -hmm. some beer or something. And, and there's a kid standing behind him and there's a girl standing next to him. And then he, he calls her Carmela. Right. And then she kind of turns to on the camera and I go, oh, oh, I want to see this. I really want to, I want to see this romance blossom. I really want to see how they got together. And then that disappeared. So for me personally, I was disappointed in that. I really wanted 
I really thought we were going to see. It didn't have to be a lot. It didn't have to be a major storyline. But I would have liked to have seen them together a little bit because mm. let's face it, that's, you know, 50% of the Sopranos uh, yeah. was, was Tony and Carmela and the family. So it would have been in that, you know, would have been nice to just get a little more of a taste. So David, if you're watching, I was disappointed yeah. there wasn't a little bit more Carmela. Because at one point she even turned to the camera and you kind of saw the blue eyes uh, and you just, and I just thought, oh, that's good. That was good casting, yeah. I thought. And I really wanted to see where that went. But there you have, I'm just giving an example of how yeah. Everybody had different expectations, and uh, I don't think anybody got exactly what they wanted. I hope David got what he wanted. You know, he had a story he wanted to tell, and that's the uh, that's the leeway you always had to give David Chase. You know, with the ending of the Sopranos, from the very beginning of the Sopranos, it was a story that he wanted to tell, and that's the story he told, and uh, we bought it. And fortunately, I was in it. <laughs> so they. <laughs> Just to backtrack a little bit, if David Chase was actually watching this, I'd probably pass out with joy. Like I'd be mm -hmm. over the top and over the moon. I'm I'm already ecstatic that I'm talking to you. Like, you know, because I'm just thinking about it. Like from the perspective of a fan, I mean, I'm like one of the guys that's got like the like Sopranos cookbook. Like, oh, I'm like yeah, obsessed yeah, yeah. a little bit. And I see the shirt you're wearing. Yeah. You got your you yeah, yeah. But we've met before. Let's not lead yeah. people on. Let's not think True. that this is our, our first go around, you and I, Anthony. We True. go we go back a, a certain way and we have we have several connections beyond uh, having met before. Yeah. So for, for those of you who are who, who are listening and, and watching who um don't know, Ray and I actually got the chance to connect over Facebook. Um his childhood friend had the same last name as mine and probably is a distant cousin. So like we even got to connect that way. And uh, it was, you know, really cool. Like uh, when, you know, like you're seeing that little Carmine, you know, is, is on your Facebook. I'm just kind of like, as like a fan, I'm just like, holy shit. Like as I'm watching you on the screen, you know, on on the Sopranos and like Mad Men, I never would have thought that I'd be talking to you over a Zoom or a podcast. So it's really, truly elating as a well, fan. Here, well, here we are. And obviously I had nothing else to do, Anthony. No, <laughs> I can't, the things I canceled today for you, and you yeah. have no idea. I was going to go to the dry cleaners. I was going to go to the bank, but they're closed. So I couldn't have done. So yeah, you got me. Thank I'm you, Patrick Sharada. Oh, Patrick, Patrick. Sharada. Yeah. We should go. Well, let me give a let me give a little bit more yeah. background to that because there's, there's even more to that than, than you'd know, because the first play I ever did was in high school uh, at Christ the King high school in middle village. You might want to throw that in there. And um, that was in 19, 68. Wow. I, audition, I auditioned for my first play. It was called Inherit the Wind. And Patrick Sharada was a senior and he played the lead in that play. <laughs> and I was so inspired by his performance that we became very good friends and, and did a lot of theater projects together all through high school, summer theater, then in college. And then after college, we started a theater called the Bond Street Theater Coalition, which is still going strong. So that's my connection with Patrick. And I have to say that when I saw him play Henry Drummond in uh, Inherit the Wind in 1968, when he was a senior and he transformed into this, this older, you know, powerful lawyer, um, it was inspiring to me and a big, big part of the reason why I became an actor. So you mentioned our connection with the Sharada name. He's more than that. It's a connection to why I actually became an actor and was so inspired at 14 years old. So if it wasn't for Patrick, we might not have a little, little Carmine or well, the little Carmine yeah, that well, we I, know. Well, you wouldn't be the little Carmine that you know, but I don't want to give Patrick too much credit. But yes, 
he was he was an inspiration and and uh, really had a, a a big impact on my early years as an actor and and being inspired to just do it and acting for the act, acting sake and just uh, just the work. He was a big yeah. part of it. Yeah. Not so. to be too sentimental here, but um, like you know, you're kind of doing that for like me, like you're passing down the torch because you know you're sitting here, you're giving me the time of day, you're giving me my chance with the podcast and you know you're you're basically doing the same thing for one of Patrick's well, little cousins I guess yeah yeah, yeah. distant cousins yeah well you know it, it it's got to be that way I mean none of us nobody would be where they are if they didn't learn something from somebody else you know um I'm still learning I still go on a set and I'll hear a term from a grip or somebody or a director or an AD and it's like oh, wait a second, I've been doing this for 45 years. I never heard that expression. You know, what is that? So you could constantly learn something. And then, you know, I've worked with, I've worked with some really great legendary actors. You know, for instance, Sir Ben Kingsley and Lauren Bacall on The Sopranos, as well as, uh, you know, James Gandolfini and everybody else. Uh, um, but I've worked with, you know, Richard Krenner and James Earl Jones, you might, you know, and, and Dick Van Dyke and, you know, a lot of big, big names and uh, Alice and Jenny, I, I just did a movie with before the pandemic and you learn from everybody. And, you know, when I've worked with some of those big stars, I mean, James Earl Jones, he's been around forever. He's done everything. And when you could still learn and he was still so humble and he was still just an actor, that's what I realized he was, we were working and he was just an actor trying to get it right in that scene. You know, it was in that moment, we just wanted, and, you never, you're always learning from somebody else. And uh, that's the only way to grow. And it's the only way to get any better. What was it like working with someone for the first time? Like, you know, like uh, so someone that you knew that was a household names like James Earl Jones. Well, first of all, he's got that voice. Yeah. And all he has to do is say, good morning to you. And, you know, it's, it's, this is CNN and it's right. Star Wars, Luke, you are, you know, it's everything. And you're, you're, you know, his voice, your whole body, I don't know if it's like tuned to the, the tone of my body, but your whole body kind of vibrates when he just says your name. So there's a, there's a real, a presence that he had, but then there was a gentility and a, a humility, um, that just, like I said, all of a sudden you're sitting down, you're just two actors working on a scene. And I felt that way with Gandolfini. Anytime I work with Gandolfini, I mean, at that time, you know, I didn't come on till season four. So he was already, you know, in the stratosphere of fame all around the world. And, uh, and again, he also had a similar presence to James Earl Jones. He walked in a room and everybody looked, you know, he was just, he could just, it was like that EF Hutton commercial, but he just freezes when he walks in because he had that kind of presence. And my first scene was a sit down, a one-on-one -on -one with him. And he could be very intimidating at first, you know, as his character was very intimidating to begin with. But my first scene, I could not be intimidated by him. I had to be at his level or even thinking that I'm above his level <laughs> in the, in the acting of the scene. But uh, with all the great actors you it comes back down to you just two actors working on a scene. Uh, and I got that from Gandolfini. I got that from, from Ben Kingsley, I, Sir Ben Kingsley. I got that from uh, <laughs> um, James Earl Jones or Dick Van Dyke or anybody else, all the good ones. And then you'll come across actors of, of less note and less fame and less talent, dare I say, that don't have that feeling you don't get that feeling that we're just trying to make the best scene it's like they're trying to do their thing and the hell with you but um 
but the greats that you learn from are the ones that you realize you're just trying to do the best you can and help each other and help the grips and help the prop guys and make it easier for everybody else to just uh, make the best product. So that's what I That learned. was very well said. That was Thank very you. well said. So as, uh, as the audience, the audience knows, um, Breaking Bread is an Italian American podcast. Everyone who comes on has some sort of Italian heritage or connection to Italian heritage. Raised just a little bit Italian, like, you little, know, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> well, some of my best friends are Italian. Let me see. That would have been all four of my grandparents, <laughs> my mother, my father, my sister, my brother. Yeah. My all four of my grandparents uh, came over uh, from Sicily, as I think we've discussed. Yeah. So I have a little yes. bit. of Yeah. And they're from Shaka, right? Um, my father's family was from Shaka and my mother's family was uh, from outside in uh, Palermo, outside of Palermo. Now, from the last time that we spoke, you had a pretty interesting story about your pilgrimage to um, uh, yeah. Shaka. And I'm sure that the audience at Growing Up Italian would love to hear it. You want to hear it now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I, I, it was quite a few years ago. I had got a friend of mine. Um, I don't know how it came out. She was talking to a reporter or something. And she said that I always wanted to go to Shaka. And then this reporter is in a little article in, in Shaka wrote that I had uh, that that's where my my grandparents were from and they wrote a little article about it and then I got invited to come to Shaka because they have this literary award and uh, they invited me to come if I could come at that certain period of time so uh, I have a nephew who I'm very close with who also speaks fluent Italian which doesn't hurt and uh, we decided to meet up in Rome and then go down and and do some traveling and go to Shaka for this event and it was it was amazing. The whole, you know, it's a small fishing town, but to stand, to stand on a, a on a fishing dock where I knew that my grandfather sold fish or brought in fish, it was just, it was something so. The reaction was so visceral. I mean, you just you could feel it, and the people were just so welcoming. And uh, there were so many coincidences that happened on that trip that would just mind. For instance, we're traveling from Rome. I don't know how much time yet. We're traveling from Rome to Palermo and we're waiting at the Rome airport. And because it's Rome, there was a three hour delay <laughs> the plane was delayed <laughs> to go to, to fly to Palermo. And uh, while we're sitting there, I see a guy wearing a Santa Barbara, California t-shirt and he's sitting next to a magnificent looking woman. And then my nephew is from Santa Barbara. So we were going to talk to him, but we didn't, he was reading. Then we get on the plane, we're boarding the plane and uh, I'm sitting at the window, my nephew's in the middle and, and on the aisle seat was this very distinguished gentleman, all dressed in black, his hair slicked back with these little glasses and he's reading, looking very distinguished. And the guy from Santa Barbara sits on the opposite aisle with the Santa Barbara sweatshirt, California, that's Santa Barbara, California. So uh, the flight takes off and um, my nephew asks him, are you from Santa Barbara? And he says, no, um, I am a chef and I cook in a Santa Barbara at a hotel, but I am going home to get married. Oh, great. Where are you going? I am going to Shaka. We said, we're going to Shaka. You know, it's, it's not yet. So then the distinguished gentleman looks up and he goes, I too am going to Shaka. Are you Ray Abruzzo? I say, yes. He goes, I am reading about you right now. Turns out he was from Shaka. He's an actor that lives in Rome and Alfonso and Vinoroso. And he, uh, he became our tour guide and best friend for everything that we did in Shaka. His father was like the town historian. 
we couldn't have met the be a better person to show us around. And then uh, we went to my grandfather's grave. You know, he died in um, 1934 uh, in, in Shaka. So, uh, and here we are, I guess it was about 12 years ago um, to stand there. And, and, you know, well, when we decided to go to the cemetery, the owner of the bed and breakfast decided he had to come. <laughs> Uh, my friend had to come too. So there was like a little caravan of cars and we, we get to the cemetery and we, they can't, they're looking in the book and, you know, Abruzzo is a very common name in Chaka, even though Abruzzo is a region further north, but um, a lot of Abruzzo, all the Abruzzos in this country come from Sicily. So, but they spell it with one B or two Bs. And it could be the same family, a sister and brother could spell it with one B or two Bs, depending on who filled out the birth certificate. So it took them, a, we couldn't find my grandfather's grave. But I had a little photograph of my father standing at my grandfather's grave from like 1971, he had made the pilgrimage himself. So I had this photograph, this little tiny photograph, and I'm holding it. And this elderly man comes over in Italian, he takes the photograph from my hand and he goes, I know where this is. So he leads us to the, and now there's like you know, a little entourage of people going to see my, my grandfather's grave. And, um, and as we approach, everybody backs off and just without saying anything, they just instinctively backed away and just let my nephew and I go to the grave. And it was so emotional and so, I can't even explain what it was. It was, you know, you talk about a, a pride, Italian pride. It's not like he did anything great. He's, he sold fish from a horse-drawn wagon, you know? But I, I, I kept thinking while I'm standing there, any little decision he made in his 58 years, because he had died at 58, which by the way, it was my 58th birthday when I was there. Wow. Um, and uh, uh, I just kept thinking that any little decision he made in his life was the reason I was standing there right now and why I'm talking to Anthony Sharada right now. You know, he could have made a different decision in, in 1920 and, you know, 1906 or something. And this conversation isn't happening. And that just kind of flooded over me. And it was just so, it was so moving and emotional. And just, it, you, you couldn't help but feel incredibly connected to your roots at that moment. And uh, I've kind of held on to that since then. And then when we were leaving the cemetery, I saw that little old man and I said, uh, you know, thank you for showing me. He said, I served my purpose. That was his response for helping me find the grave. Wow. It was just, you know, and everybody's just sobbing. You know, it was just one of those beautiful moments that I'll, I'll never forget and I'll always have with me. That is such a beautiful story. And like as an Italian-American, you know, it's hard. It's heartwarming. And I'm sure that the audience thinks it's heartwarming, too, like, uh, I love hearing stories like that just because in my own opinion, I could be wrong because I am biased, but in my own opinion, um, like, you know, I feel like people don't talk that way anymore. So what you're, what you're saying is, you know, it really resonates. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, when he said, I served my purpose, it was one of the most, it was, it was one of the most poignant, powerful moments of my life. It was just, there was something so simple and elegant and powerful and human about that moment. So. How would you say that, because uh, obviously being Italian has had a big impact on your life, um, how would you say that it influenced your career in acting or if it did at all? Oh, it did a lot. It did, it did very much so in positive and negative ways, I have to say. Early on, when I first started, there were, you know, before Pacino and, and De Niro, you know, you, there weren't a lot of Italian-American actors. You know, I'd, I'd gravitate towards, uh, you know, Ben Gazzara. 
because yeah. he, you know, he, you know, he was a, he was a favorite of mine growing up, or Harry Guardino, or Tony Francioso. There were a few, you know, but not a lot, and they weren't big, big stars. And um, and when I started out, there really was a little bit of a bias, you know. It was like at that time, if you were Italian, you were considered ethnic, so there would be casting breakdowns. It would say, you know, not ethnic or or ethnic ethnic required, and that yeah. meant Italian. You know, Italian-American was was a big ethnicity at that time and could get you a job or not get you a job. I could give an example. I tested for a TV series. This is in my lifetime, in the 80s, um, to play a doctor. Now, the doctor had an Italian-American surname. And uh, the storyline was that he was Italian. They, they hinted at that. And I tested at the network. And I, I did a really great job, really great job. And a friend of mine was a young executive with that network at the time. And then I didn't get the part. And I knew I killed in the room. I knew I really nailed it. I, I, you know, I know when I do well, I know when the part is mine and when it's not. And I really thought, yeah, nobody could do this better than I can at this particular moment. And I didn't get the part. And my friend told me when I left the room, somebody said, nobody will buy an Italian American doctor. This is in the eighties. And there was that kind of, you know, and, uh, so that was really, that was a tough, tough pill to swallow at that time to realize that. And then I saw who they cast and he was kind of, they kept the name Italian, but he was blonde haired and faired and there was no ethnicity about him. No, you know, um, but you know, so that's, it's changed a lot now, of course, now I'm not ethnic, but you know, before the Sopranos, I never played a mobster. I had it in, in plays, but I had never played a mobster on TV. I played cops, a lot of cops good cops. I played a lot of lawyers. I played doctors, but I had never played a mobster. Then the Sopranos came along. I played a, a mobster. And after that, it was like, well, you know, he's got that whole mobster thing going on, you know? So it was a double-edged sword. Yo, yeah, he was on the Sopranos. He was great. I, yeah, but you know, he's got that whole mobster thing, you know? And then, and then they'd cast me on TV shows to be the maybe the red herring on a of the bad guy it's like well because he we know him as a mobster so we could misdirect the audience to think he's the guilty one but he's really not or he is the guilty one so yeah you know the italian american thing did you know it's funny after the sopranos um or right as right as the sopranos was ending i also was doing a recurring role on uh boston legal because I had done a lot with David Kelly before that. I had done six years on, on the practice playing a detective before The Sopranos. And my character was uh, Michael McGuire, <laughs> right? An, a, an Irish detective, homicide detective, but they never made any reference to the ethnicity and nobody ever mentioned that, you know, it never came up. But then after The Sopranos, um, they cast me in um, Boston Legal to play a federal prosecutor. Uh, and his name was like John Smith, just let's say. And I, I, I knew the producer pretty well. Actually, he's from Elmhurst, Queens guy, Bill D'Elia. And I said, Bill, could you do me a favor? It's not important, but is it possible to give this guy an Italian last name? He said, why? I said, well, you know, I just got finished playing a mobster all this. And I think it would be good for people to see an Italian federal prosecutor, you know? And he said, bing, 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 new pages came down and he had an Italian last name within like minutes. And it was just a small thing. And I actually stole that idea from Joe Montaigne, who's a friend of mine, who he had done a series called First Monday, where he played a uh, Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. And he had to make the character Italian, even though there are several Italian Supreme Court justices, for some reason, it's not in the, in the, in the consciousness 
um, you know, people still think of, you know, the Sopranos and Goodfellas and the Godfather and all that. And, you know, those are the, some of the greatest movies and TV that there is, but I think it's only fair to show us in the rest of society as well. Hearing yeah. that. Does that answer like, your question? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And like hearing that, like, you know, um, that that happened in your lifetime. Like, I feel like from my generation, it's so far, you know, it's like right. not even in sight. Right, right. And so hearing that is like shocking, like it's bone chilling almost because, you know, the odds are my, my nono probably went through things like that. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. Now that we're back, um, I got to say, you look exactly like you did on The Sopranos. I'm not saying that to butter you up. Like, you wow. know, when you when you joined, I'm like, you know, this guy doesn't age. Like, literally, it must be the, those good Italian jeans. Huh? No, it, you want to know what the secret is? <laughs> What's the secret? Backlighting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's this. I've discovered that the secret to aging gracefully is yeah. backlighting. No, I'm uh, no, I, you know, I'm for I, I, I'm fortunate, but it is, you know, I think I started what in 2002, I think was my first episode. So it's like, you know, 17 years ago at eight. Ooh, wow. Time is flying. Um, yeah, but I feel older. And mm -hmm. if you look closer, I am older, but it's all my real hair, my real color. I never <laughs> colored my hair if anybody's asking. Uh, yeah. I think Italian jeans has something to do with it. And, you know, I live kind of a, I live kind of a very simple life. You know, I've never been a big, well, I'm not going to say never, but I don't smoke. You know, I've never smoked. I don't, I'm not a big drinker. It's not that I don't drink. I'll have, you know, I can beer once in a while, but I think, and I have a pretty easy lifestyle. So I think that and, uh, and the genes has a lot to do with it. Amen. That, uh, and, and thank you, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> any, any chance that it's just like the bright California sun, you know, you, you got the hell out of New York. You can't deal well, with that anymore. Well, you know, I, I I think maybe you know I lived on the beach for a long time out here, oh. so I was really got a lot of sun, and I think I think I'd probably look younger had I not done that. <laughs> you know, I I see the effects as the sun. You know, when it's happening, you think, oh no, this looks great. You don't think, yeah, but in a few years, you know what that's going to look like. Um, and plus, it's not really healthy. I say, uh, but I think the lifestyle out here had a lot to do with me. Um, you know, I feel younger. I still feel like I'm striving. I never really felt content yet. I never, here's, here's, here's the thing. I decided early on, you know, I, I, I came out here with a lot of other actors that came out around the same time mm -hmm. and some of them just got so bitter, you know? And when I was in New York, it was just, you'd sit with actors. We'd all sit with actors. And that was beautiful. That's, you know, that's that kind of starving artist thing. But then as you start working and working, when, when people are still so intense about getting their next job and that's all you talk about, and then you don't get it, it makes you, it's easy to get bitter. So I decided early to find things in my life that um, make me happy and give me some joy outside of the business. Because the odd thing about being an actor is you, you need somebody else's permission to do it. You know, it's not like if you're a songwriter, you wake up in the middle of the night with an idea, you write the song. As an actor, I wake up in the morning, what am I going to do, a monologue in my living room? You know, it's not. <laughs> so it's so easy to get bitter and jaded and, and, uh, and that has a negative effect on you. Uh, so I decided early to always have something else in my life that I find a little, that I find some joy in that I have control over. Uh, you know, for a while it was kayaking in the ocean. Now I ride a horse regularly, whatever it is. Uh, it could be very simple, but it's got to be something that you find joy in 
that isn't dependent on other people. And I think that that really helps keep you young and because nothing ages you like bitterness. You know? Yeah. Well, you might, if you want to write that one down, that's a good one. I just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. that, that sounds like that it's going to go on like my, my like fridge magnet. Like, you know, <laughs> I need you, but, but, but bitterness with a little sun. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's not quite, you're at the precipice of an enormous crossroads, but it's. <laughs> you, it's you, my... you beat me to it. I've been dying to say that. I've been holding it in. I'm like, don't say it. He probably gets it all the time. He gets it all the time. Uh, there's so many I get. It's it, yeah. it, it's truly remarkable, and I always have to tip my hat to the writers because they they just kept them coming, you know. And mostly Terry Winter would just come up with the greatest ones. And then there are ones, one of the lines that's quoted back to me at all at the time we didn't realize was going to be one of those lines because it wasn't necessarily a malaprop. And I even talked to Terry about two months ago we were on the phone. I said I got to tell you, everybody throws this line at me. He said, you know, I don't even remember writing. And I knew he wrote that scene. He says, I don't even remember writing. It was just a line. And it's your wow. brother, Billy, your brother, Billy, whatever happened there, the whatever happened there has become like a tagline to every, you know, I'll post a picture of a horse and somebody go, oh, the horse, whatever happened there. <laughs> I was in Hawaii a couple of weeks ago shoot, shooting a film and I wrote, I wrote a picture of Hawaii and people write Hawaii, whatever happened there, <laughs> you know, and it's, uh, and it's not even a, it's not even one of his malaprops, but it was just such a, a defining moment in the show. Cause actually the whole, everything flips at that moment. Cause that line alone, he was just about to broker peace between the two families. If he doesn't say your brother, Billy, whatever happened there, they shake hands. There's no war. The show's over. <laughs> so yeah. so uh, that whatever happened there actually had a lot more ramifications than we uh, ever anticipated. But I, I just remember saying that line. It was, it was just so much fun feeling the tension between Phil and yeah. uh, to be in to be in between those guys at that moment. And if you remember the room of guys, Silvio's there, Butchie's there. It was a very intense. Uh, I'll never forget. That was really, really. A great memorable day and 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 uh terry went to gave me a great memorable line well that whole speech is just that whole scene is so magnificently written now i gotta ask you a general sopranos question but it does involve a little um karma i'm like sure that you've gotten it in the past but i'm just gonna blurt it out for my own selfishness sorry audience while i have you here i gotta ask you um what was I going to say? So at the end, when little Carmine is kind of making the second piece, I guess that, that, that we can say, you know, when right. he basically gives up where Philly is or, you know, helps Butchie say where, 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 where Philly is like, uh, do you think that like little Carmine might've had any role in like, you know, maybe Tony's downfall a little bit later or like, you know, well, that's if you thought that Tony had a downfall. And that's right. up for debate still. They're both they're both up for debate. I, the moment, you know, I love the subtlety. You know, David Chase directed that particular episode. That episode was was made in America. That that was that big sit down we had in the in the yeah. big 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 giant warehouse. It was freezing cold, by the way. You could see the the frost coming out of our mouth. There was no special effects. We were freezing. wow. There was an ice storm, and the the outside that um, that warehouse was just black ice. We weren't allowed to go to our trailer, so we were stuck in there all night wow. long. All of the actors, and we were just huddled around one little heater. And those chairs we were sitting on were metal chairs. You know how cold they were, like icicles. Yeah. 
And I just remember really shivering. And Jimmy used to kept making fun of me for being, oh yeah, California boy, you know, you can't take the cold because I was the only one from California. But um, the, the, the subtlety of that moment, and that's a pure tribute to David Chase, is when he, he says Butchie to, to let him know where Philly is. And Butchie kind of just looks up at me and I give him the, the smallest nonverbal go ahead. Uh, which is very, you know, it's it's deep and it uh, it shows that Carmine still still had his hand in it and still still had the respect. I mean, you know, like he says, uh, like he says to Tony, you never thought you'd mutter those words when he says, you know, you have our support, you know, step up, Carmine. Uh, he was pretty self-aware, little Carmine, I think, always self-aware of his position in the family. I mean, he did. He was blinded by wanting the power, but then he realized, you know, it's not for him and it's not for his family. And maybe he doesn't have what it takes to do that. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think it was a weakness to say that he didn't have what it takes. I think it was more of a, an integrity and a humanity. Um, but that's my take on it. And, but no, he was still, I think he's still, I, he was definitely involved in Phil. Now, whether he had anything to do with Tony, which was your question. Yeah. Uh, I personally never buy that Tony was whacked at the end. Really? No, my opinion, my opinion always has been that life goes on. He's always going to be looking at the door. You know, he's always, he's always going to wonder who that guy is. It's always going to be the threat. But at this moment, he's with his family. It's one of the happiest moments they've ever had. It's the, it's the yeah. happiest their family has ever been, you know? And, and, and AJ actually says, you said to me, dad, once, you know, it's, it's the little things in life that you have that make you happy that you have to hold on to something like that, which kind of reflects back to what current little Carmine told Tony, you know, it's not about being boss. It's about being happy. Um, and I think that kind of resonated. And I think my point is, I think David Chase's point in that last scene, it's called made in America, like we said. And I think he was saying that, this show is not just about the Sopranos or the mob in New Jersey and New York. It's a microcosm of America, made in America. And when you looked at the people in that restaurant, which we had never seen before up until that point, uh, it was really a cross section of America. You had kind of a trucker guy, you had Cub Scouts, you had the urban guys come in, you had a, a little romantic couple. You could have been anywhere in America in that restaurant. It was so not limited to New Jersey or New York, and uh, to me, that's what I always felt. I thought, this is what he's saying. This is America. This isn't just the Sopranos. And, uh, and I think life goes on. Just like he never wrapped up every episode, every season, I think he didn't wrap up the, uh, the, uh, the show. It ended for us, not yeah. for Tony. That's my feeling. That's brilliant, that take on it, just because um, I kind of see what you're saying, like the Made in America thing, because the like Sopranos like I don't think that people realized it then but looking back on it now like you know as someone I I did live live through through that time like when my parents would would watch it they would banish me upstairs you right. know because I was too little me and my brother actually used to walk around like this like because we like knew that it was about guns or something <laughs> but anyway um like you know the like Sopranos is really keen on talking about specific uh social issues and looking back on it it holds up really well yeah and uh like you know it's really illustrating what you know was going on in the early 2000s you know in the world what's ac acceptable now you know wasn't acceptable then and it 
portrayed it so brilliantly and yeah. uh, looking back on it like you know that's all my norm but you know during the time period when the show was airing it was new to everyone right everything so, yeah it would be yeah. there's a reason they called it groundbreaking that's for yeah sure. yeah yeah so what you said it's totally brilliant like you know as, as like far as like um you know i never honestly was open to that take that tony lived through it i like i like wanted that to happen and like the like, most way possible but uh I got wrapped up in like a loophole of like reading um like all these fan theories. Someone said it was Paulie. It was like this really deep, intricate oh, fan theory. I was like, th what the hell? There are theories, there are theories that AJ's girlfriend was behind it. Do you know he was please, dating? Please tell me you're kidding. No, no, Bianca? he was no, no, oh, no, 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 no. The, he, um, the, in the very last episode, he yeah. just he had this. I don't remember the character's name, which is a very pretty young girl. They're sitting on the couch watching TV and Somebody and Tony or Carmella says, "We're going to Holstein's tonight," you know, and and the camera sees that she sees it. So then the whole fan thing went off that she was a plant and she to tell them where Tony was going to be, you know. Think about that. That, that, I mean, you a, could, you're, you're like blowing my mind today. My well, you, I mean, is, you, it, you could go with anything, but I could give you a cinematic reason why I don't think Tony was whacked. I have a very clear visual reason why um, people disagree with me, but there were two points of view in that scene, us looking at Tony and Tony's point of view at the door. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go with the theory that you don't hear it coming, it just goes black, which he says to Bobby in the season before. Um, well, then you people think, well, it went black because Tony got whacked, except the last shot is what? Who's in the last shot? Tony, right? So if it went black for Tony, we would have had to see it happen. Yeah. As it goes to Good black. Point. He's Good looking point. at the door. It, uh, you know, so if it was shooting this way and it went black and uh, it's not him, if, if he, if it was his point of view of the door yeah. and it went black, I'd say, yes, the guy came out of the bathroom, and put one in his head. That's, that's the way I see it from a cinematic point of view. That's actually a very good point. And that pretty much puts it to bed in my head. Like, you know, being an aspiring filmmaker, like, you know, I mean, how could you argue against that? That's perfectly, you know. Right. You'd have to see it. You would, yeah, even you if would it was just to, a flash, yeah. even if it was a flash black, but there was no yeah. flash black. You could go, you could go frame by frame and frame by frame and it's just black. You would have seen, if the blackness was him dying, you would have seen it because the camera was on him. Out of curiosity, again, because you know I'm I'm just such a nut about this kind of stuff, and I'm sure everyone, everyone who is uh, watching and listening is too. But um, like, what is the consensus like among the cast members in your opinion? So like, you know, do, does everyone kind of think like you? Is it a fifty-fifty split? You know, I I, I can't say I ever did a uh, took a poll. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there's so many of us that never saw, hadn't seen each other again. We, you know, we did a reunion, a Zoom reunion during the pandemic. Um, oh, that's nice. And then there were, you know, the couple of Sopranos con and uh, which, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that a lot of times we were seeing people for the first time. So, you know, I've stayed friends with the, with a few people. Carl Capertordo is one of mm -hmm. my best friends who played, who played Little Paulie. He's also a, a brilliant writer, by the way. Uh, he wrote really? He wrote for Vinyl. He wrote for Tommy Boy. Uh, wow. Show. He wrote for The Deuce. And he, he works on a project with Terry Winter now. He was a writer, and but before he was an actor. He was always wow. a, 
the, a playwright. Um, so uh, we, we've been, we, we're very, very good friends. And, uh, you know, I talk to Edie every once in a while, Michael every once in a while, but it's not that we, we don't, I, we never get together and say, well, how do you think it ended? Yeah. You know, at the end, we were all, you know, we all knew it ended at the table, but we didn't understand that music cutting in the middle of a word and the, it going to black. So it was intense for all of us, uh, the, the, the visceral reaction to the yeah. blackness. Um, but I, I think, I, I'm sure it's split amongst everybody the same way it is amongst the, the yeah. fans, but I don't think yeah. everybody, I don't think the cast goes down the, the rabbit hole like, a lot, of, yeah. like yeah. a lot of people do. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. There's, um, you know, I did see this one interesting article to, to move away from the ending now, because I'm not going to throw all these fan theories at you, but to move away from, from the ending, I didn't get a chance to read it. I just saw the headline. It could have been clickbait. I know that it was from a reputable source, though. It's saying that the many scenes of Newark uh, left itself open for more Sopranos movies. In your own opinion, what do you have to say about that? And also, do you think that there's a chance that there could we could see young little Carmine? Never know. You but. certainly could. You certainly could. I mean, you could have seen little, young little Carmine in that. I mean, True. that's part of the thing people wanted. They wanted more young Silvio. They wanted yeah. more young Paulie. They wanted more young Pussy. Um, and you only saw little snippets, and then you wanted. I wanted Carmela, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think you know there was there was that possibility when they first were talking about it. I had the fantasy that maybe I'd play Carmine. Maybe I'd play my father. Yeah, you know, I would. I, that's that's what Why I was not? alluding to as well. That would have been that, that would have been brilliant sense. casting, but he certainly leaves room where the end of uh, <clears throat> Many Saints of Newark ends. Uh, um, Tony uh, uh, Michael Gandolfini's character uh, at that point is, uh, I think, just making the decision that he might be involved, that he's crossing over. You know, obviously. Uh, so there's there's room from that point to him walking into Melfi's office, basically, yeah, yeah. Of, of story, you know, up until you'd have to cast the, you know, you could never cast anybody but James Gandolfini at that point. But up until that point, you know, there's quite a few years in between, you know, a good 20 yeah. years of, of story. Yeah, well, sure, because that was 66, 67, right? Or it takes us right yeah. into the 70s, the beginning of the 70s. Many Saints in Newark, I think like 71. I think something. it starts out. Yeah, it starts but it, out earlier. And but it, it, I think it ends in like yeah. 1970 or something. So there's, you know, there's a good 20 something years of, of uh, material. So he, cer he certainly could certainly open to that. Or, you know, there could be a little Carmine coming out of retirement uh, when he's yeah. in his <laughs> late 60s or 70s and taking over New York again. There's that possibility. Since we know David's watching. Let's go with that <laughs> We established David, that, we? if you're watching, you know, uh, <laughs> I hope my theories don't piss you off. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. He's heard them all. He's yeah, heard them yeah. all, I'm sure. But, yeah. uh, Ray, it has been such a pleasure. Um, I always love talking to you. Like, you know, you're, you're one of those people that's an intellectual. You, you can have those um, kind of conversations that, you know, uh, I don't I don't want to say that that most people can. But, you know, like you, you it's a really intellectual into a lecture eh. yeah it's a smart. really nice conversation yeah 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 it happens yeah. yeah well i appreciate that anthony i always like talking to you it always i feel like i'm talking to a, an old friend or a relative or cousin a young cousin or something so i'm always here for you anthony <laughs>